I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. This side of the wind, it is still, he had just been thinking as he stared toward the two aspens in the evening sky. Something was filtering through the treetops. It was so clear he felt he could see it. No wind, just something filtering through. And on this side it was so still that not a leaf on the other aspen trembled. But suddenly came a tiny little sound, a strange cry, and at the same time he could just make out quick flapping wings in the air above him. Then came more faint calls in a helpless bird language. It went straight across the house, but it went straight through Mattis as well. A wordless excitement arose inside him. He sat there wide awake and confused. Was it supernatural? No, anything but, and yet it was a woodcock that had flapped over the house. And the woodcock didn't do that sort of thing by chance, not at this time of day. A flight had begun over his house. That was a passage from near the beginning of the birds by Tariai Vesos, which was originally published in Nynorsk in 1957 and is available from Peter Owen Books and now as a Penguin Modern Classics edition. The translation is by Michael Barnes and Torbjorn Stoverud. The central character of the birds is Mattis, a mentally disabled man living with his sister in a small rural community in Norway. We observe Mattis as he attempts to navigate the obstacles of everyday life, the obligations of work, family relationships, and even romantic love. Mattis's transcendental or even visionary inner life, keenly evoked by Versos's spare and lucid prose, is richer than it appears to those around him. At the core of the novel is Mattis's struggle with the border between experience and expression in a world where birds seem to understand more than people. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this emotionally generous classic of Norwegian literature. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pillum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Oh yeah, great, Sam. So before we get started today, I just wanted to thank a few people who have been very kind about the show and have either shared our page or said very nice things about it. So I wanted to just thank Kevin Somerville, who is a sort of continuous supporter of the show, quite often gets in touch about it, and Jeff Hall and 
Geraldine Hudson, who have said really nice things about us, and Matt Jaff, or Matt Jaffer, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce that. So thank you very much. And I also wanted to single out some of our fans in Scandinavia, who have also been really, really kind, uh, particularly Anders Morgensen, who seems to buy every single book we, we talk about and, and read along with us, which is really nice of him, and I hope he enjoys the books we choose. Then Felix... Isaksen and Celia Henderson have also been extremely kind about us. So thank, thanks so much. It's nice to have a little fan base in Scandinavia as well, no, Rob? Yes, amazing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, especially pertinent for the book we're reading today. But yeah, it's so, so nice to think that there's people interested and in, in listening all over the world. So yeah, it's amazing. In fact, today's book might be a, a little bit of a bore for our Scandinavian <laughs> listeners, because I think this is a, a book that you actually you have to read in school, in Norway at least. Today we're talking about The Birds by Tarje Vessos, which was originally published in 1957. Quite a remarkable book. No, Rob, how did you feel about reading this one? I mean, this is this is just absolutely amazing, and I didn't I didn't know that it was a kind of a uh, set school text. But what an incredible book to read at school! I mean, it really blew me away. Really, absolutely amazing. And I actually I haven't mentioned this yet, but um, I put it down and just straight away got hold of a copy of um, the Ice Palace, another one of his, and started reading it straight away because I enjoyed the style and. Um, well, everything about it. I mean, obviously, we're, we're going to talk about it at length now, but it was it was just really, really amazing. I thought. I don't know if you kind of shared that real love of of this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, actually, I read a few of his books before this one quite a long time ago. I read The Ice Palace and I read The Boat in the Evening. Both of them are really special, I think. But. Particularly, I was particularly impressed by The Boat in the Evening, which is a slightly more sort of impenetrable text than The Ice Palace. And all the more interesting for it, I think, it sort of mixes prose and poetry. So you get some chapters that are a narrative, a straightforward narrative, and then sort of fragment into lyric poetry. And some of the chapters are kind of disconnected from each other, but are sort of woven together in a really interesting way. So that that was a really interesting experience to read that. But yeah, I loved The Ice Palace too. This book is, is just wonderful, isn't it? I enjoyed it so much. I, I found it deeply moving and, and really mysterious in some way. I think maybe what I responded to most was um, this sort of meeting point between like quietude and turmoil. There's this a real evocation of a simple rural life and a quite a sort of serene, dramatically beautiful landscape. And in the midst of it is this individual heart in in distress. And and I just think that clash is so interesting. Yeah, 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 completely. I mean, there's an incredible simplicity that runs through the entire thing, for me anyway. The description of the landscape or even the role the landscape plays within this book anyway it's never overstated and it it's we don't even really learn that much about it we know i think quite little about the area that this um, narrative is taking place beyond the fact that it has a lake and maybe some hills and obviously some trees as one of the characters is a lumberjack mm. but yet something in this kind of very sparse evocation really brings it to life it is incredibly real and i think 
or for me, it was definitely incredibly real. And um, and I felt that about almost every element of the book. I don't know, I find it quite hard to pinpoint exactly what it is in this that does that. Unlike something that we've read together, like Anna Kavan, where things were very mysterious through an absence and it felt really, you know, I think we spoke about it at the time, like seeing everything or hearing everything through a through a fog. Mm. Um, there's a clarity to everything that goes on here. But yeah, there is a, a definite mystery where... Somehow you're being presented with everything, but it there's there's something more or there's something deeper which is needs to be unpacked. Yeah, I mean this is one of the the most sort of impressive things about it. I think that you feel transported to another consciousness almost. You feel like you're learning to think in a in a different way. Mm, um, yeah, and so I suppose we should explain that although it's written in the third person, it's very close point of view. The, the point of view is really closely molded to the inner life of the main character matters and the reader experiences pretty much everything through this obscured or no obscure is the wrong word like a like a distorting lens i suppose but through that distortion vessels re- retains a kind of clarity like a very lucid mode of expression and so there's a bit of a singularity or an anomaly in and in, in, yeah. in the way in which you seem to be reading everything in in the clearest terms possible but you still feel that that there's something central that is that remains mysterious maybe that's to do with mattis's struggle in itself and his his kind of search for meaning as well yeah yeah yeah. i mean i think you've hit the nail on the head exactly like that because we're being brought along so much alongside mattis and and seeing things as he does it is really i mean i think yeah that's a really fantastic way of describing it as uh, learning how to think again somehow and i think that is what makes this this strange it's not about something being withheld it's about the tools for comprehending it suddenly shifting and that to capture that in a in a book is, is just incredible I understand you can tell us a little bit about the life of Tarja Vesos. So yeah, he was born in 1897 in a small village in the south of Norway. One of three boys of whom he was the eldest. So he came from a family of farmers who had been farming in the same place for centuries. It seems to come up again and again that as the oldest he was expected to take over the farm. But obviously, as we know, this isn't something that happened became a writer and a very celebrated writer but apparently he was guilt-ridden by the fact that he he didn't take up the place that was supposedly allotted to him and perhaps broke with you know hundreds of years of tradition and I think this is something that perhaps comes through in the novel in the character of Matisse this relationship with work and others around you and a, a way of life that has existed for centuries and what happens when you break with that for various different reasons spends his youth in in this kind of rural surroundings and yeah apparently the only formal education he received above elementary school was a kind of a folk high school like a boarding school without exams which is really again like when you think about the quality of these novels really really incredible that's astonishing yeah i didn't realize that yeah he he then marries the norwegian writer and lyricist again apologies to our Scandinavian listeners because I just have no idea but I'm going to give it a go the Norwegian uh, <laughs> writer and lyricist Haldis Moran 
Vesos and moved to another town of Midpol, also in the same district. Now, another thing that seems to crop up a lot in these biographies is the idea of Vesos as um, very private and someone who perhaps didn't travel so much. Uh, he was born and, as we'll come to, he also died in this same district. But interestingly, in a sort of biography, I did a little bit of research about his wife as well, who was very successful in her own right and it says that although they established themselves in this district they traveled a lot and they traveled through nordic countries the rest of europe and in that time made ties with other poets and i suppose will have you know experienced a lot of things kind of elements of literary modernism and things that are very clear in in the work of Vesos. But then also because of that, apparently according to this biography of her, their home in Midbo became a kind of s a small Nordic cultural hub. So I wonder, yeah, how much this idea of uh, Vesos as a very private, closed individual who maybe has like a stronger relationship with nature is part of this romantic idea of this type of author and, and really how true it is. He continues to write poems and novels for 50 years. And he wrote as well, going to discuss later I think in native language Nynorsk rather than the more common I think the Bokmal Bokmol Bokmol the the book we're talking about today is written in 1957 which is kind of towards the later period yeah i suppose so i mean he, yeah so he he dies in what the 70s is it 1970 yeah 1970 on the dot yeah there's an interesting thing which i wasn't able to back up but in uh some information that i was reading in the national book review it says that in an interview vesos described mattis as the character of all his books with whom he most identified it's very interesting. I found this particular quote when I was trying to do some research to find out what Vesos's relationship or experience with any kind of like educate, you know, special educational needs or with any kind of disability in general, or whether whether this was something that he had experienced personally or you know had experienced family or you know because it feels extremely progressive for the time and even even now I think it it strikes you quite how good <laughs> for want of a better word this the the portrayal of Mattis is and sensitive as well sensitive yeah that's a yeah uh, sensitive and and generous I'm trying to find adjectives which which don't sound patronizing because it's I mean that's for me the thing that really stands out about this is that it really it absolutely isn't patronizing so I couldn't find out that that bit of information unfortunately but the fact that he describes Mattis as, as this uh, the most identifiable you know the, the character that he most identifies with I think is very is really fascinating and perhaps says a lot about things that we might not always be willing to admit about our own relationship with the world and, and kind of anxieties and things like that very honest thing to say the last thing to say for me anyway is that he dies at the age of 72 in the in the same village where he was born which i think maybe adds slightly to this like romantic idea of someone very attuned to place which is you know seemingly certainly very true I suppose coming coming back to what you mentioned about the form of Norwegian in which he writes mm. so a few things are worth saying about it i suppose it's the less widespread of the two yeah. So I think that at its 
most widespread, it was used by about 30% or roughly 30% of Norwegians um, and now has kind of receded to between 10 and 15%. So it's mm. in regression, as it were. Also, as I understand it, it doesn't actually represent another language at all. It's a different mode of writing Norwegian, as I understand it. That's because Norway was under Danish rule for a, such a long time uh. and um, Bokmol, I think, comes almost directly from Danish orthography but in in the late 19th century this poet and philologist lexicographer Ivar Olsen decided sort of I think I think in the the spirit of romantic nationalism almost you know this need to forge a kind of artistic or expressive consciousness of of the nation created a new orthography that would more accurately express the sounds of Norwegian and he came up with Nunarsk which yeah is a distinctly west scandinavian orthography rather than an east scandinavian orthography which you know danish would be forgive me if any of that is is incorrect but that's my understanding of it i don't think it has the status of dialect exactly or what we might imagine when we think of vernacular dialect in in english and maybe it's also worth saying that it might have been considered sort of inferior in some sense to bokmol mm. and that it wasn't really considered worthy of literary expression but that Vesos did quite a lot to change that impression and sort of brought a new new mastery a new form of literary expression to the language that helped sort of establish it in Norwegian literary culture it's not as though it would be unintelligible I think both both of these forms of orthography are are mutually intelligible but the, I guess it would give it a, a very different character a distinct character I can't really think of a, an equivalent of doing that in in English exactly maybe if you were to read something that's phonetically spelled or something like that yeah I was just thinking about for example I suppose Ridley Walker but I mean it I guess it's a, a complete you know an attempt to generate a new or capture a kind of new form of writing rather than something that has a history and a kind of like the the weight that's developed through everyday usage because I almost can't imagine what what that would sound like in to write like that in English well it's a, I suppose it would it would also localize it very much as mm. a southern southern Norwegian novel because I think the sort of spread of Nunarsk is quite sort of concentrated in mm. one particular area of Norway so would certainly you know, make it apparent that it's, it's something distinctly regional about it too. Inwardly Mattis was bursting with song, him and the woodcock. He felt an urge to walk through the little wood right underneath the invisible streaks in the sky. That was his path, a path full of joy. He wasn't disappointed this time either. After a little while he had to stop. You are you, a voice inside him seemed to be saying. At least that was what it sounded like to him. It was said in the language of birds, said in their writing. He was standing by a dried up patch of bog right underneath the woodcock's path. Standing, looking spellbound reading a message or whatever it was that had been left there for him, in the smooth brown surface of the marshy soil were the faint imprints of a bird's feet. A number of tiny, deep, round holes had been dug up as well. The woodcock had been there. 
The deep holes had been made by the woodcock's beak, which had thrust down into the ground to dig up morsels of food, or sometimes just to prick out messages. Mattis bent down and read what was written, looked at the graceful dancing footprints. That's how fine and graceful the bird is, he thought. That's how gracefully my bird walks over the marshy ground when he's tired of the air. You are you. That was what was written. What a greeting to receive. He found a twig and pricked an answer in an empty space on the brown surface. He didn't use ordinary letters. It was meant for the woodcock, so he wrote in the same way as the birds. The woodcock's bound to notice it the next time he's here. I'm the only one who comes here, and the only one who writes. I was reminded very strongly of one of my favourite plays, Georg Buchner's Wojtek, for for quite a number of reasons. Do you know that play, Rob? Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose this central character whose poor grasp of intricacies of language and social interaction makes it almost impossible for them to kind of give voice to their inner lives. Mm. Yeah, the characters in both Wojtek and in The Birds share that problem, I think. There's a sort of rich and tempestuous inner life that, that can't really be expressed or can't be understood by anyone that surrounds them either. Mattis begins to interpret the world through symbols in, in a kind of visionary manner, but the, the symbols that populate his own consciousness are often just meaningless to, to those that surround him. It seemed to me that, just like in Wojtek, that the divorce between the internal and the external is, is kind of where the tragedy of the book lies. There's this sense of a sort of straining, like hyper-consciousness against a reality that won't fit it somehow. Mm. And also in relation with other characters. You know, this very famous line in the Buchner play, and it goes, uh, Jeder Mensch ist ein Abgrund, es schwindelt einem, wenn man hinabsieht. Or in English, every man is an abyss one gets dizzy looking in. It seems to me that Mattis might just as well have uttered mm. that idea, you know, that there's something sort of in, impenetrable about his, his so, social interactions, interactions with nature. I don't know, I just felt Buchner kind of running very strongly through through this text. There are also similarities between the endings as well. Both texts end quite tragically, and I, I, I mean, I won't go into particulars right now, but I was made once again to think of the ending of uh, Wojtek. I suppose just as an uh, addendum, is that a word? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Addendum <laughs> to your biography. Mm. I know that Vesas had spent time in Germany and particularly enjoyed the, the theatre, and particularly expressionist mm. theatre. And one of the strange things about Wojtek is that despite the fact that it is actually written in the Romantic era and comes very much out of that world, the fragmentary state in which it was left has given it a kind of expressionist character. So it's actually taken up by modernists as a kind of model of, of how to proceed in a very strange way. It's mm, not really yeah, known okay. how much of that is accidental or yeah. how finished this, this work was, but I can see 
quite a strong influence on this book. Also, maybe this just occurred to me, really, but do you know a book called Pan by Knut Hampson? Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I haven't actually read it, but yeah. Another similarity strikes me that it was talking about that clash between the serenity of the landscape and this, this inner turmoil that I can really see there. Mm. And although it's um, the, the main character of that book is not impaired in any way intellectually, there's this complete lack of any grasp of etiquette or, or how one should interact. And he sort of cherishes the moments that he's alone and interacts with the landscape and I could see I could see something sort of similar there too so maybe there's also an, a slight ancestor there in, in Norwegian literature as well mm. I mean that could be an outsider's perspective on it perhaps but it, it did strike me as something quite similar yeah can you see that Bushnell influence there as well Rob yeah 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 yeah. definitely no I think it's a really really valid point and yeah something I hadn't hadn't really thought about although one of the things I was really fascinated about with Mattis and it really struck me in first time of reading was the way he's so sure of his feelings towards something or something's impression on him and when he then tries to speak to someone about that he seems very surprised that they haven't had the same experience experience Mm. but yet when pushed on it by that person he then just fades into saying well I can't really you know it doesn't feel like there's something that you know he lacks for language it's not like you know had had he had the right words or the ability to use those words he might be able to express it and certainly that is something that happens in there but almost as if it is this thing exists for Mattis on on a, a plane that just doesn't translate into language the way that you might really really struggle to describe a very specific sensory experience or something you know where you might just have to say well but I just know it's you know how 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 can I say that you know, how can I describe the thought process? And so, yeah, there's almost this surprise from Mattis constantly that other people just don't understand. It feels like however much he obviously throughout the book talks about a kind of desire to be to be one of the clever ones and the, someone with a, a sharp tongue or a, you know, a quick wit. Um, but you feel like if he, you know, if these dreams were realised, it perhaps wouldn't be any different because there's there's something else going on there. Yeah, it almost looks like, feels to me like the points when it enters a kind of linguistic realm or enters enters a point where he needs to communicate these feelings with someone that's when he looks to other people almost seemingly saying well hang on this is this is your realm why you know is is kind of shocked that they're not able to to do that for him somehow or to say like but but do you not understand like why why can you not put into language this thing that was surely we're both experiencing and I found that like an interestingly complex way of thinking about that because it's it felt like there's an extra layer beyond this purely the idea of saying I don't have the words for it it felt somehow more than that I suppose um when you are straining to describe something that is perhaps ineffable or that isn't an experience that is sort of on the plane of language, you frequently end up in metaphorical territory, don't you? Mm. But Mattis's language is never like that at all. Uh, he deals yeah. in concrete terms, I think, even though what his internal life is concerned with is not always it's not always something that can be described with nouns or straightforward determinations. You sort of wonder if he actually had a degree of eloquence at his disposal, whether that would make any any difference at all, mm. and, and perhaps it wouldn't.
He was beginning to feel very tired, and his arms were numb. Fast rowing like this was not his forte, but he wasn't going to give in now. He gave a quick glance over his shoulder, saw a number of people on the pier, and then he directed all his attention to keeping the wake dead straight to the very last. More people had stopped and were beginning to congregate on the pier now, when they saw it was Simple Simon, but a Simple Simon quite unlike the one they knew, and it was a landing worth stopping for. Like some triumphant victor from distant shores, the shining boat came gliding in in the glittering sun, and in the back sat two golden girls, waving with lazy, friendly gestures in the direction of the pier. And Mattis was in command, knew everything about rowing, steered safely and securely, anything but a simpleton. Everything was going off perfectly, down to the very last detail. Mattis's own boat was still in tow, but it had taken in some water which made the going heavier. All the same, Mattis managed to keep his speed up until he was forced to avoid the supports under the pier. No one watching realized how close he had come to exhaustion, but anyway, his strength was returning now, in the sheer excitement and joy of it all. There was quite a little crowd waiting on the pier to receive them, five or six at least, and how many those six could tell the story afterward? That was the point. Six times six times six at least. I do some voluntary work with a group of adults, mostly autistic, but a kind of a real range of different people who are, they're just a, yeah, like a really, a really, really incredible group. And a word that gets used a lot within that group is the idea of being neurodiverse. And I think that's a, a really fantastic way of understanding this. Uh, I mean, it's a term I really like, and I think it's a, a really nice way to approach this text as well, because as you said, I think so well, the idea that you're being asked to kind of relearn to think in this in this novel is absolutely true. We're being presented with, yeah, very, a very diverse way of thinking. I've never read anything quite like it, I don't think, in terms of how sensitive and how generous it is. And how, because you are so close to Mattis' point of view, and I don't know if you found the same, Sam, but things are presented to you in such a matter-of-fact way, but often are outside of your, the kind of like normal way of, of perceiving things that it makes for like a really compelling and very, very believable rendering of, of yeah, this, this other thought process. I think you, you build up a certain sympathy with Mattis. You find that you are as frustrated with those who surround him as he becomes sometimes uh, because you've kind of absorbed his mode of thinking. You've, you've been party to his moments of rapture and, and transcendence in a way that nobody else has. But I also think that Vessos does a, an incredible job of depicting Mattis's struggle with the sort of strain that he puts on on his sister in particular, and mm. maybe to a lesser degree to the to the village that they live in. You simultaneously you, you sympathise deeply with Mattis's plight, and you you learn to abide with with his frustrations, but you never quite lose sight of, frankly, the misery that he has put his sister Hager mm. through, which is an, another kind of tragedy that that can't be ignored. I think we sort of weirdly become the bridge between the his sister's way of thinking 
thinking and, and the villagers' way of thinking and Mattis's way of thinking because we can absolutely see the points of miscommunication and misunderstanding because we are party to Mattis's thought process to like a really incredible degree. But yet we can also see the points where he doesn't understand or when some thing which is imbued with like uh, what for us is very, very easy to see kind of socially what's, uh, you know, things like social cues and and what exactly is going on in a certain situation. And for Mattis, it's incredibly confusing. The portrayal of Hager treads this incredible tightrope where you see the, the love that she has for her brother and things that she will do for him, but yet the strain that will inevitably come from that. Bringing it back to personal experience very quickly, you know, it feels like a, a real privilege sometimes to volunteer at this group because you kind of get an insight and a kind of what this book does, I suppose, like a way of a way of looking at things and a way of thinking about things, which is so different from the way you might normally, that, yeah, it's a really amazing experience. But I suppose one of the things which potentially comes out of this book is that Hegger's position is is one that's kind of societally imposed that it's her job to look after her brother and then you know this fated almost as um you know this there's nothing that can be done with other things in place or if the understanding of of mattis is as sensitive as it is within the book then actually her situation doesn't necessarily need to, to be like that if that makes sense that if a space is made in the world for for mattis then Hegger's role suddenly doesn't have to be quite what it is mm-hmm. and the the narrative doesn't have to proceed in the kind of really tragic way that it does. It's definitely not polemic, this book, in any way, but I think that is a really interesting thing to come out of it. That's not something I'd actually considered really in reading it, but it's yeah, it's a really nice way of not that this not that this book has to be justified in any sense, but it's it's a really nice way in which it might actually change people's perceptions in a very concrete way about these kinds of disabilities. And just also, I mean, things like um the turmoil that Mattis struggles with, you know, there's a, a lot of things which are very specific to his way of thinking and his his relationship with work is, is so shaped with his apparent inability to to have a kind of like normative thought process or um yeah to to kind of be in full control of his thoughts the kind of isolation that he has and the, actually some of the turmoil comes from things that anyone might struggle with the kind of loneliness and these romantic endeavors which again feel really very well portrayed in that they are simultaneously neither childishly simplistic but also that Mattis has been kind of kept away from the adult world there are there are things that he obviously doesn't understand and he's very aware of that but I think you know just having a a character like this with a fully fledged romantic inner life is a really important thing to happen there's other elements of this that I think are really kind of sensitive portrayal of um, someone who has a like a very diverse way of thinking it's not my usual habit really to read and kind of psychologically diagnose (laughs) characters in books i know some people like to do that it's not it's Mm. not really how i uh, ordinarily proceed but i was interested in how strongly one particular symptom of psychotic disorders was pushed forward this term ideas of reference or delusions of reference you had heard of that one rob that term or i hadn't heard of the term specifically but when we spoke earlier and you spoke in a bit of detail about it i yeah i do i do definitely know what you mean this can manifest itself in a variety of ways it might be that um the sufferer is is convinced that 
everyone that surrounds them is is talking about them or that events have been deliberately specifically contrived for them or um, interpreting ordinary objects or gestures as symbolic or, or ominous it really struck me that we can see some of Mattis's behavior as, as quite consistent with those kinds of symptoms. I'm thinking maybe of the, the ways in which he worries so intensely about the way people will be thinking or talking about him when he enters that local shop to buy sweets. The importance he attaches to, to the trees that have been named after him and Heger, and then the length the lengths to which he goes to, to shield his sister from the guilt he feels when he's internally decided that... <laughs> One of them represents her and that particular tree has been struck by lightning in a storm. And besides this symbolic relationship with the world, the one thing that that struck me reading about that was this tension between being the centre of everything and the fear of not being the centre of of anything. Mm. I was reading a passage from R.D. Lang's Self and Others. Incidentally, Rob, where does that term neurodiverse come from is is that is that's not a lang thing is it i i actually don't know um strikes me that it could be it seems to come out of that anti-psychiatry thing but anyway so lang writes um in typical paranoid ideas of reference the person feels that the murmurings and mutterings he hears as he walks past the street crowd are about him in a bar a burst of laughter behind his back is that some joke cracked about him When one gets to know such a person more than superficially, one often discovers that what tortures him is not so much his delusions of reference, but his harrowing suspicion that he is of no importance to anyone, that no one is referring to him at all. What constantly preoccupies and torments the paranoid is usually the precise opposite of what at first is most apparent. He is persecuted by being the centre of everyone else's world, yet he is preoccupied with the thought that he never occupies the first place in anyone's affection and that seemed to me like a very i feel i feel like the 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 scene in which mattis functions as a sort of ferryman for these two beautiful young girls that that visit the lake um is precisely this kind of idea you know he decides to row the girls back to a sort of busy area to put his boat in at an old pier by the store where there are lots of people and houses all around and he says i'll arrive like a prince uh, all who all who wish may come and watch it struck me as very close to what was going on there i mean do you think that's too harsh a reading of the situation or do you you know do you think there's something more childlike more sort of naive about that encounter or does does that make some sense to you yeah no i think i think definitely i think that's certainly what's going there i think that there is an underlying desire from matis to show although actually yeah this scene is really interesting in a way that i perhaps hadn't thought about before in that in other elements of the book mattis talks about wishing to actually be a different person to be yeah as you said one of the one of the clever ones or to you know have these other qualities but at this point he sort of almost forcibly changes himself to be someone but the the thing that as you've pointed out is most interested in is for other people to see that and to take center stage somehow and yeah i agree it's a really remarkable scene and it's you know it's almost homeric in it's uh, i was just rereading it quickly and describes the boat pulling in as a landing worth stopping for 
Like some triumphant victor from distant shores, the shining boat came gliding in, in the glittering sun. And in the back sat two golden girls. Yeah, I mean, it's so... At this moment, he's so aware of other people's ideas of him, but it's completely within his own mind. This creation of, of how people will perceive it, and whether there'll even be anyone there is... Um, I don't want to say narcissistic, because I think that's unfair, but it exists wholly within his kind of inner life i suppose yeah i mean when he does arrive there are a few people mentioned there i think there's an old there's an old mm. man and a few a few a few children knocking around uh, who end up making fun of him he considers it a, a victory because these these two girls say nice things to him in front of everyone and and he sort of lives with the strength of that for for quite a long mm. time after after the encounter doesn't he it does it seems to have almost as much impact on him as the as his relationship with this woodcock is it seems almost as important yeah 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 yeah, completely and it's interesting the bird the woodcock is at one point described as his sweetheart and there's uh, this relationship so it's hard to know i mean i think there's you know multiple things going on there with you know when he realizes that this woodcock begins flying over the house but i don't know it's it's something about it struck me as an element of his isolation and his desire to have someone or something to communicate with that first happens with this kind of almost like wish fulfillment of uh, communication with the birds and the really beautiful scene where he begins to scratch markings in into the mud so that the bird can read it and the bird then returns that and that this yeah this this wish fulfillment is then somehow almost realized in the scene with the two girls which is really beautiful in its own way especially in comparison with the kind of tragic events later on where for a moment anyway Mattis seems to I mean it almost seems too good to be true right that he gets everything he wants and and becomes the person that he wishes he could be the woodcock for him he repeatedly says about it being the thing that will start some kind of a, a change but really I think you're you're absolutely right that the important moment is that after meeting these two girls that's the moment where he seems to have like a, a new confidence or something which which of course then leads to him rowing on the lake and and finding very strangely this lumberjack who then goes on to kind of threaten his position and change his life to such an extent one of my impressions was that that term ideas of reference or delusions of reference could most easily be applied to Mattis's relationship with the woodcock. I was looking for specifically any folklore or specifically Nordic folklore related uh, with this bird, but I was unable to find anything beyond English folklore. But what I found is quite interesting, and I think you found the same thing, right, Rob? Just the the idea of the the woodcock being kind of symbolic of simplicity or simpleton because of how easy they are to trap and so yeah i suppose in terms of that kind of like need for a for a companion or or someone to share his experience or his way of seeing things with the fact that it ends up being this woodcock with that particular symbolism feels like it's potentially chosen for for that reason yeah i mean um it certainly makes the reading of the the woodcock as a kind of reflection of self 
a little bit more enticing, doesn't it? Mm. But then I, I wonder about, I wonder how simply English that origin of the term is and yeah, whether, whether it applies in, in Norwegian culture. I mean, if anybody knows, I'd be really <laughs> curious to find out. But I, I got something else from it as a, as a symbol, something closer to what you were talking about with wish fulfillment, I think. Mm. It seems to me that it might be incidental that that folkloric association with the word cock as a simpleton or or dupe, as interesting as it might be, that Mattis develops a very specifically private mythology surrounding this bird. The curious thing for me is that, unlike the peoples who surround Mattis, who, whose emotional states he seems unable to read, the woodcock seems not only to signify something very particular to him, I mean, he's quite explicit about the fact that he knows something has changed fundamentally within him. He knows that after the appearance of the woodcock, something is different now. The, the, the woodcock is also articulate in some sense, in a way that nobody else seems to be you know there's a ref- references to the language of birds and that the woodcock writes a message down in the in the boglands i mean i can read a little passage there when when that that occurs mm. um, and matter seems to interpret it very clearly so uh, vesos writes he was standing by a dried up patch of bog right underneath the woodcock's path standing looking spellbound reading a message or whatever it was that had been left there for him in the smooth brown surface of the marshy soil were the faint imprints of a bird's feet a number of tiny deep round holes had been dug up as well the woodcock had been there the deep holes had been made by the woodcock's beak which it thrust down into the ground to dig up morsels of food or sometimes just to prick out messages Mattis bent down and read what was written you are you that was what was written what a greeting to receive that message that he reads there you are you it seems a really interesting one to me as though through mattis's interpretation of of course the woodcock has uttered some kind of ontological or psychological truth some confirmation of his identity some sort of deep recognition that he hasn't been able to find anywhere else and perhaps that's why Mattis mourns so when the woodcock is shot it's not only a reflection of Mattis's soul as one who's too easy to fool but it becomes it becomes a kind of point of orientation for the self in his reality and and without it he he becomes kind of anchorless I don't know I don't know what you think of that maybe that's yeah no no I yeah completely completely and I think there's something there with that kind of tautology of you are you you know that's seemingly the the perfect description of the ineffable there's no you know there's no description at all it's just it is the thing it is but I was also and again there's something I hadn't I hadn't thought about at all until came to me when when you were speaking but I realized that Mattis and this is I don't know if this is uh, this is a thing with woodcocks that they have very specific lines of flight but Mattis certainly seems to think so and is incredibly surprised and the huge the revelation to him seems to be not purely that there is a woodcock there but it, that it is now flying over the house and that it's flying backwards and forwards every night and it consistently does this but the huge thing for him is that it has changed and I wonder if there's an element there that Mattis kind of you know if he sees himself reflected in the woodcock or vice versa that there's an idea that certainly Mattis is a being uh, who kind of needs routine or needs this structure and it's you know towards the end of the book the 
possibility that this routine and this structure might fall apart, fall away, is what precedes the tragedy. But here it's another creature of habit which is showing that it can it can change. And I was interested in the conversation that he has with the shopkeeper when he tries to explain, as he does to so many people, how amazing it is that the woodcock is now flying over his house. And the shopkeeper says, you know, comes up with a very prosaic explanation that it's, of course, just a young woodcock that's finding its own new path. And Mattis gets sort of quite angry about that and says, there's nothing special about what you're saying. You mustn't make things out to be less important than they are when they really are important. And I wonder if this is actually potentially part of what's going on here, that it's showing Mattis that there's this possibility of, of change or that, you know, something that seems so routine that like a routine itself can change and, and whether he sees something in that for his own life, the way that that instantly precedes him talking about how there's going to be a change in his own life and in fact immediately precedes this um, dream you know it's very kind of freudian dream that he then has where he is suddenly uh, able to speak his mind in you know, very eloquently but yet also has these arms which are so muscly they rip his yeah. shirt <laughs> and so yeah i wonder i wonder if there's an element of that in it too because i yeah 100 percent agree that i think the personal mythology or personal folklore that this has is um far more interesting and, and relevant than what the symbolic whatever kind of like culturally symbolic meaning the the woodcock might have yeah whether it it does just simply represent this this idea of a change which is not threatening but a change that can come from matters himself perhaps i don't know that's really interesting rob i think i'm really glad you said a change that can come from himself because all other kinds of change do appear as as threats don't they i mean particularly when uh, the character of jürgen arrives who becomes involved with with hager and takes it upon himself to try and turn mattis into a man and get him out working as a lumberjack and so on um this notion of of change that is a sort of applied externally is one of quite crushing sort of mental consequences for for Mattis isn't it I think you're right it really has to be something that he is driven to to do himself because for all that Mattis says that he knows that other people call him simple Simon you know as as readers we realize that actually his um, his internal life and his way of seeing things is absolutely you know anything but simple like incredibly incredibly rich and although he certainly does struggle with certain social situations he's not completely immune to them by any stretch of the imagination like he's very aware when although he doesn't always know what he's done to make people think that his actions might be strange or inappropriate he's always aware that that has happened and he's very very aware that he may not be you know he sees himself as as not good enough or not manly enough and so the the push the this kind of external push for him to do this this thing that he realizes he can't really do yeah is 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 kind of tragic to see through his eyes and the real fear that's portrayed there being in that situation is incredibly sad They lay resting their backs. Jürgen had a little piece of stick in his hand, and in an absent-minded way, he aimed a blow at a couple of gleaming red toadstools close to him. The two men were resting in a clearing full of old branches and tree stumps, tufts of grass, and fat toadstools. Jürgen suddenly began talking about the beautiful toadstools in an effort to change the subject. 
Look at the matters. If you ate those, it'd be the end of everything, I should think. The toadstools stood there, clothed in scarlet, split in two by Jürgen's stick. Their flesh was white and fresh, and contained poison and death. Mattis gave a start, but remained lying with his eyes fixed on the toadstools. Do you really think so? Yes, they're poisonous, said Jürgen. In the old days, they made them into broth when they wanted to go berserk and slaughter people. Mattis couldn't take his eyes off the toadstools. He was prey to strange and frightening desires he was unable to control. Mattis looked at the toadstools, and the toadstools looked back, took hold of him, seized control of his mind and body, bewitching him. Directly after we both read the book, we had a brief talk about this, I think, Rob. I know you didn't entirely agree with me, but I feel like there's a strong connection between Mattis and the idea of the artist. And I think you had concerns about the sort of romanticizing of mental illness. Do you, do you still feel that? Is that? No, I think actually having finished the book, because I think we spoke about this before we'd both finished. Is that oh, right? Okay, maybe. Yeah. I can't remember. But I think, or, or at least having more time to think about it I think yeah there is something there is something really valid because I think actually I mean you know we're both certainly in agreement that this isn't a kind of patronizing or romantic idea of um, of Mattis in any way but it's very interesting reading kind of some more biographical details and hearing how perhaps Vichos had some personal turmoil about taking the route of an artist rather than that of the farmer mm. and I think that's something that's obviously quite clearly put here but yeah I mean we're not we're not dealing with I think someone who has like a artistic output necessarily like I don't know it's not it's not trying to make any claims that he has some kind of particular artistic sensibility but I think it is much more broadly just a completely different way of thinking which as we were saying earlier like if it was perhaps realized by people in the in the village to a certain extent would actually be no bad thing so I think yeah certainly certainly from that point of view I would definitely agree with you now (laughs) yeah I think this idea of the guilt that he experiences is where it comes through most clearly for me Mm. not just in this idea of a sort of visionary sensibility but specifically the idea of reconciling that which you're engaged in which seems to take place sort of outside mundane reality in in some sense when all the while there is someone present who is taking care of that mundane reality making sure it sort of ticks over and this is the kind of guilt that that Mattis feels in in relation to his sort of long-suffering sister who's the sole earner in the family and cooks all the meals and cleans up after him and takes care of him generally behaves more like a parent than a than a sister mm. and Mattis tortures himself with his distaste or inability to engage in physical labor though he knows it's expected of him so i i see in Mattis this vision of the artist to attempt to re- reconcile the real world with the artistic endeavor i mean if yeah if we allow ourselves maybe a bit of an old-fashioned conception of the the artistic visionary we can conceive the artist as someone who is in touch with the universal or communing with something that transcends the the physical and, and therefore has sort of no need of the worldly or the ordinary 
and mm. and it's actually in some sense truly devoted to play and and <laughs> contemplation i mean in a, i mean that quite seriously you know that yeah that the artist can be someone who takes play very seriously but that in the end at some point when it's forced to engage on some le- level with the material aspect of life and that that's something matters struggle struggles with all the way through and and it only intensifies when the character of Jürgen arrives and hearing you talk about Vesos and the position that he was expected to take up in the family I don't know it strikes me that there might be a sort of biographical correlation there yeah definitely yeah there's something of the idea that conservatively the world can say that art has to be justified and the book asks almost how can you justify art or how can you articulate its purpose particularly of of a kind of visionary or ethereal kind and that was one of the sort of main struggles of the book for me so that's how I saw the artist kind of figured in matters. I'd also personally feel that a good art or a or a worthwhile art is one that allows you to see the world differently in some way. And this is this is a ability that Mattis absolutely has, and that through Vessels, but you know this is this is completely something that were he able to share it in some way that it could be something really incredible. But I think Hege actually says at one point that she wishes she saw things as he saw them, and then of course it becomes about the the difficulty of artistic production or representation or whatever it might be. Is like how how on earth does Mattis communicate these this this way of seeing and that actually Vessels does this incredibly well and there's there's moments of real real beauty as we see things through Mattis's eyes or share his perspective briefly and so yeah I think for those moments then the the idea of Mattis as an artist is is very very strong. Do you think that makes the book a kind of victory for for art in some sense? Yeah I think so although perhaps um I mean a victory as a as a reader because we're perhaps reminded of a of a certain importance and I think it's a victory that if it's put well enough is quite difficult to refute along the normal conservative lines of you know it's, it has no use value mm. but then of course the tragedy at the end where Mattis feels that he has to somehow prove himself or cast himself to fate because seemingly he feels that the pressures that are going to be put on him by the change of his situation because he can no longer be purely this kind of looked after person but he really ought to have some input either as a lumberjack or as a ferryman or as something else that of course you know it's left slightly ambiguous at the end of the book but it may well be the death of Mattis that he's um, you know almost in in throwing himself into the hands of fate he's committed suicide because actually he just can't deal with the societal pressures that are put on him so in in a lot of ways yeah I think Vessus does make the case for this but he also shows quite how difficult that can be why what did what, what did you think in terms of the the kind of outcome of this representation of of the artist or well it's, it's something that you were saying that made me think of it that good art should in some sense transform your view of the world and it just made me think of how totally that is achieved when I was mm. reading this book personally that you know everything that Mattis struggled to communicate well not everything because there is still a mystery to it but the complexities of his thought are, are laid bare for you and that that is achieved through art right uh, through like la- through language yeah so yeah in that respect yeah i think it's like incredibly incredibly successful 
what kind of put me onto, as I was saying earlier, like trying to do a bit of research to find out if there was some like personal relationship between Vesos and um, this educational disability or, or something like that, was because the relationship with language amongst some of the people that I volunteer with is just absolutely incredible. There's quite a few people there who can't write, and seemingly because of that, their relationship with language is far more weighted towards the phonetic and, and kind of purely the sound of letters and because of that their wordplay is just like something else um you know deliberately it's not you know it's not that they're saying the wrong word but they'll deliberately make word plays and you know when you're talking to each other and it's just like the best poetry you've ever heard and things that you would never think about because perhaps your idea of language is encumbered by certain meanings all sorts of things that actually they see past or they've heard past and this is something I really yeah Mattis's relationship with language I felt mirrored this really to like an uncanny degree and I really love that Mattis's relationship with language is almost thin aesthetic in that at points his relationship with certain words is is described as his his desire for words is kind of huge or they're described as the way that you might describe some item of food that you really wanted or um the the describe i mean he specifically says that the the word had a bitter taste at one point Mm. and so that for me is the kind of like mattis as artist i suppose is through this relationship with language and i think yeah i suppose this as a as a poet as well as a novelist this really comes out i love that aspect of the the character actually and there's something humorous about it too i think Mm. quite early on in the novel becomes apparent that there are certain words that Heger is is aware of that are particularly meaningful on a on a plane beyond their sort of utilitarian meaning for for Mattis and there are certain words that she avoids sometimes out of sensitivity or sometimes out of Mm. overexciting him he has a very physical reaction to some words seems to be fascinated by words that are to do with intellect to do with penetration or cutting Mm. sharp words we sometimes hear him thinking that the word was like lightning or that it pierced through him or something like that so language divorced from its ordinary meaning is one of the vehicles through which Mattis can actually communicate with the outside world can sort of imprint something of his own sensibility on the outside world at least through through Hager so it becomes in some sense a sort of artistic instrument for him yeah maybe this is connected I think in terms of that also as well as words there's this almost obsession with phrase making that he repeats again and again throughout the book wondering either internally or actually says it out loud whether something is well put or a phrase is well made and the idea of something actually being able to communicate what he wants to communicate seems to be far more than perhaps what we might normally associate that with that when the words themselves have almost like a physical effect the importance I suppose of of making sure that the words are correctly chosen and put in the right order and this yeah this element when he does meet the the two girls and I think one of them says out of the blue that something's well put which is you know once again almost feels like this kind of like fully realized wish fulfillment Mm. but is you know for I guess for you know could be something that you just say in conversation as a something nice to say but for Mattis that means so much more because the construction of even a simple sentence means so much more because 
those words have meaning far beyond just their ability to carry or sorry words have it's actually quite difficult to speak about mm. because the, the words then uh yeah the way of describing it kind of doesn't do justice to what's going on here but um yeah the the weight of what he's saying means so much more than well, actually no the weight of what he's saying is so much more than what it means and so mm. i think definitely the these kind of like sub levels of communication that he has with Hegger, which has developed over the years is incredibly beautifully realized that she understands that even just the giving something like a normal thing it's its name means so much more for Mattis than it would for someone else very well put Rob <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you the final immortal question. How many shirts does the birds get? For me, I think it will be nine. I really, I massively enjoyed this. Yeah, I mean, basically, we could just get rid of this whole podcast and I think we can just have you saying that it's like learning how to think again. <laughs> and that, for me, put it put it perfectly and that's I think that's all that needs to be said. And for a for a book that can do that, it's it's got to be a nine. But what about you? Yeah, absolutely the same, man. Easily nine shirts. It's just such an immersive experience. This tragic human drama in the centre of the silent landscape, so affecting for me. Mm. Yeah, I could see why it's a classic of Norwegian literature, basically. Yeah. I noticed also that Penguin is bringing it, bringing it out as a modern classics edition in mm. July. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so I'm sure lots more people will be reading it very soon, and I couldn't be happier about that because, yeah, it's been available for quite a long time from, from Peter Owen, but I guess Peter Owen had sort of a slightly less recognisable <laughs> brand for, yeah. for most uh, book buyers, so I think Penguin Classics will bring it to a new audience. Yeah, absolutely beautiful book. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you want to support the show, please leave us a review at iTunes. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.